Hello and welcome to Interpreting India. I'm Srinath Raghavan and this is a podcast presented by Carnegie India. Every week we bring to you voices from India and around the world as we unpack the role of technology, the economy and foreign policy in shaping India's relationship with the world. In the light of the recent coronavirus outbreak, we are now recording and producing episodes of Interpreting India remotely. Since the imposition of a nationwide lockdown, the Indian government has announced a slew of measures to counter the economic fallout of the pandemic. In the banking sector, the focus was on liquidity infusion and the provision of relief to stressed borrowers. Later, the government announced its Atmanirbhar Bharat package, which provided economic support to other key sectors including small and medium enterprises, agriculture, the urban and rural poor. However, critics have also pointed out that the government's actions were not commensurate with the scale of the crisis at hand. In particular, the Atmanirbhar Bharat package provided much less than the headline figure of 10% of India's GDP. 3 months have passed since these measures were initiated. Over this time, what has been the impact of India's economic response? to the pandemic have these measures actually provided a safety net to the economy more importantly what are the prospects of economic growth in the short to medium term and what does the government need to do to ensure both recovery and growth to discuss all this we have with us today pranjul bhandari pranjul is the chief india economist at hsbc securities and capital markets india She is responsible for developing the firm's position on macroeconomics and public policy in India, leading their economic research franchise from Mumbai. Prior to joining HSBC, Pranjul completed a resident fellowship at the IMF in Washington D.C. after graduating as a Mason Fellow from the Harvard Kennedy School. Previously, she has worked at India's Ministry of Finance with the Chief Economic Advisor and at the Planning Commission with the Deputy Chairman. She has held roles as an economist covering Asian markets at Goldman Sachs and at Britain's Department for International Development. Pranjal, welcome to Interpreting India. Great to have you with us today. Thank you, Sheena. Great to be here. Pranjal, I want to start by asking you to give us a little bit of a sense of how you read the economy and its current state. I understand these are still very uncertain times and it's not clear you know whether we are in the middle or the end of the pandemic but could you begin by giving us a snapshot of the main indicators as you read them Yeah sure so you know as india has been unlocking uh, over may and june a lot of the activity indicators that we track are looking up uh, so things like mobility data electricity consumption gst ebay bills generation labor force participation all of those things are looking much better than they were you know back in april uh, but we also have to look at it very carefully you know they look better compared to uh, the lockdown period but if you look at it with uh, the same time last year then things aren't great in fact things are still running about 30% below what they were the same time last year so some improvement from the lows but still a long way to go and i think uh, the big question here is you know what's driving the improvement uh, i think the, the the improvement is mostly being driven by postponed consumption demand the lockdown that we went into came as a surprise to many people hadn't stocked up so as soon as things began to open up a lot of consumers went out there buying things uh, you know there's been a huge pent up consumption demand 
on the back of that inventory restocking and manufacturing. So all of that has led to this increase uh, since the April news. Uh, so that's what we're looking at now. But that also worries me a little bit because uh, pent-up consumption demand uh, is a one-time. You know, it can't sustain growth uh, over long periods. And I'm worried that once July and August are over, what will really drive India's GDP growth? Right. And how do you see the impact of the various measures that the government had announced, you know, about three months ago, we've seen uh, a series of things being rolled out. I mean, has all of that helped kind of stabilize the situation? Has it laid the foundation for the kind of medium term growth that you're talking about? Well, I think uh, the government has done uh, what was necessary, you know, the, the, the bare essentials. I think free food grains was a great step. Uh, a lot of cash transfers in the form of uh, PM Kisan, Narega, those were great steps too. And then uh, loan guarantees for small businesses was good too, although that is still gradually rolling out. Uh, but I think a lot still needs to be done. Uh, you know, for instance, uh, our banking system is still hurting. Uh, you know, it's been used um, as an intermediary for a lot of things that the government and the RBI has announced, but it itself has a lot of problems. For example, a very elevated stock of non-performing loans that is making it very risk-averse. It's not being able to give out loans as freely as it was in the past. Uh, and something has to be done there. I don't think any steps have been announced for that. Uh, of course, then there are some other sectors, for example, aviation, which are likely to be longer-term victims of, of COVID. Uh, and some steps are needed there as well. And finally, uh, you know, a lot has to be done about what I call allocating capital efficiently. You know, India has a limited savings available uh, and you really need to deploy it, take it out from those sectors that are not really working right now and put it in sectors that are working so we get our best bang for the buck, investment keeps sticking and jobs keep getting generated. And for this, we'll need a good resolution mechanism, for example, you know, improving the insolvency and bankruptcy code. So these are a lot of steps that still need to be taken which are probably not being taken uh, uh, adequately at this point. Now, you mentioned the problem with the banking sector and the non-performing assets or bad loans. Uh, you also talked about a sort of declining savings rate, uh, and that, of course, translated also perhaps reflected in the declining sort of investment rate, which we've also been seeing for quite a while now. Uh, but these are problems in some ways that predate uh, COVID. And one of the questions that I've been thinking about is, you know, what has been the impact of COVID? I mean, has it accentuated existing problems or has it also created new problems for the economy that will now make future growth even more challenging for us? So I'm very happy you brought this up because I think the slowdown that we're seeing, you know, some of it is, of course, new, the part that is uh, led by COVID. But even before the pandemic, India's growth was slowing. Uh, you know, a lot of people simply called it demand-side slowdown. But if you look at it carefully, it was some supply side issues and it had its route back to about a decade ago, or, you know, a decade ago when we first spotted that India's corporates were sitting on too much debt and India's banks were sitting on too much of non-performing loans. Uh, banks were extremely, uh, you know, discovers at that point. Uh, this was called the twin balance sheet problem then. Uh, a lot was written and spoken about. 
but unfortunately we were never able to resolve it fully uh, even before the pandemic india's uh, non performing loans and banks was quite elevated uh, and banks were not giving out credit adequately so there was huge balance sheet problem uh, problems already in fact you know if you look at any of our you know main data for example investment rate wages job markets over the last decade they have all been weakening and i argue it's on the back of weak balance sheets of corporates and banks uh, and this trend has probably just got accentuated by covid because what the pandemic will do is that it will probably just increase the non performing loan loans at india's banks making the banks even more risk averse than before uh, we had already started seeing some liquidity issues in india's shadow banks uh, and i'm worried that these liquidity issues will also get accentuated through the covid period so generally yes everything that was looking a bit uh, uh, you know shaky before the pandemic is perhaps likely to look a bit worse you know once the pandemic is behind us uh, and that actually brings me to uh, you know the whole concept of potential growth you know where do you where do i think india's uh, capacity to grow will be once the pandemic is behind us and i believe it will be much lower uh, than the pre pandemic uh, pre pandemic period and how does one think about this concept of potential growth i mean what what kinds of uh, you know things lead you to believe that you know the frontier of growth in in some ways perhaps has shrunk i mean how, how do we make these judgments yeah so uh, you know simply put i think uh, you know potential growth basically means uh, the rate at which our economy can grow sustainably uh, without stoking macro instability which would mean without becoming very inflationary or without leading to a balance of payment or external uh, crisis of sorts so what's your sustainable growth that your economy uh, can generate uh, interestingly it had already been declining uh, since 2008 so just before global financial crisis we estimate india's potential growth to have been just north of 7% and just before the pandemic we estimated to be just about 6% so it was already coming down slightly uh, and our own estimates suggest that by the time the pandemic is behind us it would have fallen by 1 percentage points to about 5% uh, what will be the main driver of this fallen potential growth i think it's going to be uh, india's big banking system you know what we just discussed the fact that banks were already sitting on a huge stock of non performing loans that's going to just rise uh, through this particular year and perhaps some of next making banks even more risk averse and not giving out loans adequately and when banks don't give out loans then who funds growth and therefore growth suffers so i think uh, the weak banking system is going to be the main driver of india's falling potential growth Uh, you know, a lot of people talk about the role of labor. That you know, we've heard a lot about displaced labor, labor leaving urban India and going to rural India. Could that also be a driver of lower potential growth? Uh, and here, I think not. You know, we've looked at labor a bit in detail, and we find that about sixty percent of migration from rural to urban India is aspirations led. You know, people who want to go and get higher wages. Uh, uh, and urban India promises to get five times higher wages. So we think these aspirational laborers will eventually come back, and labor won't be the main reason why India's potential growth will fall. I think mostly it will be a weak financial system. Right, and uh, now, as you rightly pointed out, I mean the problem of the banking system uh, and you know sour debts, you know non-performing assets, call, call it what you will. has been with us for a while and the government has 
tried to do some things with it over the last few years. Uh, but do you think it's time now, especially in the context of what are the further problems that the system is going to be saddled with, to think of some radically different ways of solving this problem? You know, in the past, I remember there used to be discussions about saying whether the government should create a bad bank, etc. But what is the way forward, really? Yes, you know, uh, um, it's it's a tough question, the one you ask. Uh, you know, if it was a perfectly running economy in which the reforms could be done very efficiently and very quickly, then I would say, you know, many new steps should be taken. For example, a bad bank should be created for certain sectors like real estate, uh, you know, for which the insolvency and bankruptcy code doesn't seem to be efficient enough. Uh, but the problem is that any new institutional structure in India uh, takes a lot of time uh, to build up. In fact, the Insolvency and Bankruptcy Court itself, you know, it's been a couple of years, but it's still having some teething issues. So I'm not sure if we sort of announce a new bad bank, you know, suddenly the bad bank will be working wonderfully and, you know, solving all our problems. So uh, while I do think that we need some new things and some new institutions out there, I'm not sure, uh, you know, given our capacity that we'll be able to create something very effective very quickly. So my preference at this point would be that, you know, on the one hand, we, we keep trying to do new things, but we try to make most of what we have already. Uh, and I think our insolvency and bankruptcy code is fairly powerful try to make it more efficient. A lot of the teething troubles have been identified. Try to work on that quickly. Uh, for some cases, you know, as uh, people like Arvind Subramaniam and Joshua Feldman has, have said, try to also organize a fast track insolvency and by insolvency procedure, which can help at least your small businesses. Uh, so, you know, work with what you have and try to make that very efficient. I think the other thing we can do at this point is... Uh, try to help out the banks, especially public sector banks, who will need a lot of uh, capital to get through this very difficult period in which their non-performing loans will be rising. So, you know, in the past, the government has given bank recapitalization bonds to India's banks. Uh, and I would say try to do a lot of that again, because that's one thing that the PSU banks need at that point. So work with uh, things that are already there uh, and things that have helped in the past. Uh, I think that would be very important. And I think after that, the, good in, the important step to be taken would be to really understand why did India have this huge stock of non-performing loans to begin with? Because if you don't really get to the heart of that, you're never going to come out of this problem. Um, and I think a few things, for example, uh, reforms on the land front, reforms on power distribution companies, uh, and reforms on transportation infrastructure. I think these three things would be very key. Uh, you know, if government can focus on these three, uh, then uh, a lot of the problems would get solved. Right. I'd like to come back to uh, those questions, particularly around the infrastructure kind of sector, broadly speaking. But uh, early on, you'd mentioned also that, you know, alongside regular banks, uh, you know, the shadow banking system or what we call non-banking financial companies in the Indian context, you know, has also been problematic. And we know that starting with Ireland FS and its sort of troubles, that sector has been looking shaky. And there's in fact, in some ways, the tremors from there have kind of unsettled the economy even before COVID came along. So, uh, I mean, what is your reading of the state of play as far as NBFCs are concerned? Yes, uh, to just provide a context there, 
you know, uh, the growth that we saw in the last couple of years, uh, you know, particularly from 2016, was mostly driven by India's shadow banks, you know, which are the NBFCs. Shadow banks suddenly found itself with a lot of liquidity and a lot of ability to lend. And they started giving a lot of loans. Many of the loans were for consumer durables, like two-wheelers, uh, you know, a lot of the electronics, even, uh, cars, even houses. Uh, and many consumers, instead of spending from their current salary, actually began to borrow from their future salary, which means that they started taking a lot of these loans to buy their two-wheelers, to buy their houses. There was a very nice nexus between, uh, you know, consumer non-essentials, consumer discretionary goods, uh, and, and loans from shadow banks, uh, which together drove India's growth for the last couple of years. But then uh, suddenly what happened was uh, that... Uh, uh, a lot of people began to uh, began to see that there were many balance sheet problems with the shadow banks, you know, what we call the asset liabilities mismatches. And suddenly after ILFS, uh, nobody wanted to give money to NDFCs. And suddenly there was a huge liquidity issue with India's NDFCs. Uh, so that's one problem that has continued uh, to a large extent. Meanwhile, even the consumers who were very easily taking loans from these shadow banks don't want to take on so much loans anymore. You know, suddenly their indebtedness has also risen very quickly. In fact, uh, India's household debt has risen from about, um, you know, 18% to about 30% in a matter of five years. So you see such a big increase in their indebtedness. And at a time when they're not sure about their jobs, about their wages, they really are not in any mood to take on more debt. So this whole debt-fueled consumption story is now beginning to peter off. Uh, and I think that's another problem uh, you know, with India's growth, that there are no drivers out there. And uh, what about the small and medium enterprises? Uh, I mean, because the point that you made earlier, particularly about BSU public sector banks being uh, you know, hesitant to lend because of their existing balance sheet uh, problems, etc., uh, now, the, obviously, you know, the, there is a push from the government to say that, you know, we need to make sure that there is so much credit flowing towards this uh, small and medium enterprises, then they have a credit guarantee scheme. Uh, but, but do you think that's actually translating into uh, sort of financial flows into that sector? And because banks are typically very cautious about that particular sector, even in good times, right? Yes, you're right. Uh, and uh, so, 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 so there was this, uh, you know, as, as you said, the credit guarantee scheme in which uh, three trillion rupees of you know credit outlays that can be made for small businesses. You know, on paper it sounded very promising when it was announced in May, uh, but uh, you know a lot of people were very worried that how much of this money would actually reach them. Uh, what we found that uh, you know in the last month, month and a half, uh, you know, about a third of the of the package is beginning to you know trickle into small businesses so it, it 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 is it has started with the public sector banks you know doing much of the work not really the private sector banks at this point so so we're already seeing that happen but i think the big question would be is that enough uh, and and i think the answer there is perhaps not uh, because uh, this is not that much money uh, given the number of enterprises that there are, the small and uh, you know, medium enterprises. So uh, over time, more will have to be done. For instance, uh, you know, something like an interest subvention scheme could also be there in which you know, uh, small businesses don't really have to pay the interest or get a holiday from the interest payment 
for some time. I think that's something that will help them. But the truth is that even with that, I think uh, it won't take away all the pain. This is a very painful experience for them. Uh, you know, most of the small businesses in India don't have too much of economic buffers. They don't have too much of surplus. So when cash flow falls for some time, for example, during a lockdown, then many of them uh, you know, will probably not be able to live through that pain. Uh, so uh, I think overall, there's going to be a lot of bloodbath in that sector. And uh, you know, just picking up on what you've been saying, so it seems to me that you know, the corporate sector is going to be you know, facing balance sheet problems and perhaps, you know, uh, you know, a cycle of you know debt which is going to catch up with them the household sector as you said is perhaps already over leveraged and will be looking to be much more cautious uh, in in the current context so that effectively then leaves us with the government as perhaps providing the main engine for any kind of economic growth uh, in the medium term and it is in this context that i want to understand uh, you know your earlier point about saying that the government should perhaps fix a few big sectors, particularly land, uh, power generation, uh, infrastructure more broadly. Uh, but I mean, what kinds of things do you think need to be done in order to be able to make these, uh, you know, the domains where government-led public investment can actually uh, bring a bit of an uptick as far as growth is concerned? Yeah, look, you're right in saying that most of the balance sheets uh, in the country are impaired, like for example, corporates, banks, shadow banks, uh, you know, even consumers. And to be honest, even the government, because even before the pandemic, uh, the public debt in India was seventy-two percent of GDP, which is uh, which is very high. Uh, and even with the very small fiscal stimulus that the government has announced, uh, you know, uh, uh, remember India's fiscal stimulus is perhaps one of the smallest in the region. It's just 1.4% of GDP. Even with a fairly small fiscal stimulus, the government debt this year is likely to rise from 72% to north of 85% just on the back of uh, you know, tax revenue shortfalls, revenue problems, GDP falling. So, you know, the government is not in a very good place either. I think uh, uh, the RBI, the central bank balance sheet, is relatively a bit more healthy. And that's why you're being able to see the RBI doing a lot, for example, you know, give a lot of rate cuts, also maintain uh, banking sector liquidity at surplus for a fairly long time. Uh, and, you know, a lot of the, these targeted funding schemes, which are known as targeted LTROs. So the, the central bank has been doing, has been able to do quite a lot because its balance sheet is in a fairly good situation. Uh, but overall, you know, the government and, uh, the, and the RBI will have to tag team and perhaps drag India out of this problem because no other balance sheet is fit enough to spend. So, you know, so with that context, uh, if you're talking uh, only about investment, uh, you know, a couple of points to note. Uh, number one is that we've seen in the past that uh, public capex, government-led investment, can be can be very powerful in crowding in private sector investment if it's done in a fiscally responsible way. So at some point, the government will have to play a role if it wants to crowd in private sector investment. So you know that's something that we've seen in the past, and you know hopefully maybe not this year and next year, but maybe after that the government can start increasing its capital expenditure budget again. The second thing uh, you know, we realize about investment is that it, it is very sensitive to policy uncertainty. 
you know, as soon as, uh, you know, uncertain things happen, for example, oh my God, there's a pandemic, you know, we don't know when we're going to come out of it. Or, oh my God, you know, there's this big change in tax policy or big change in FDI policy. Investors get very scared and they retract. Uh, so one of the big things uh, to get investment coming back, especially private sector investment coming back, is to ensure uh, an environment of policy certainty. Uh, this is a very useful and interesting one because it doesn't cost you very much of money. You know, and we don't have too much money out there. So it doesn't cost you very much money. But if the government from now on can say that, look, this is our tax policy, this is our FDI policy for the next three years, that can provide a lot of stability and a lot of comfort to the private sector and you know, encourage them to invest. Uh, I think these are two very core things we need to get right if we want to kickstart India's investment cycle. And just looking at the external sector, which is India's relationship with the rest of the world uh, and the global economy, I mean, uh, so there has been a lot of talk about uh, self-sufficiency, you know, Atmanirbhata, etc., uh, in 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 recent uh, months. And uh, while I can understand that some of this is very much geared towards kind of you know instilling a sense of confidence in the people that, you know, we need to stand for ourselves, et cetera. So, so to that extent, it has a certain kind of uh, a kind of, you know, a, a social mobilization function. But uh, if, if translated into more sort of uh, straightforward economic terms, uh, you know, I, I just wonder if it sends out the kind of right signals that international investors are looking for. Because if you're talking about an India, which is going to be uh, much more closed off, which is looking perhaps to say that, listen, we need uh, investments of certain kinds to come into certain areas, et cetera. Uh, then perhaps, you know, uh, it, it, we may be sort of looking to change the terms in which we've been engaging with the global economy, broadly speaking, for about 25 years now. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, India needs to give a more clear signal to the rest of the world, whether it's open for trade or not. Uh, because, you know, uh, on the one hand, uh, we have targets of increasing our exports. But on the other hand, uh, we have been raising our import tariffs every single year for the last three, four years, uh, you know, which gives completely the opposite signal. So in some sense, I think we need some clarity back home. That uh, you know, we want to be self-reliant. Uh, we want to have strong growth. We need jobs, but how do we uh, go about that? You know, what should our relationship with the rest of the world be? Because uh, you know, in my mind, uh, you know, trade is a two-way. Uh, it's, it's sort of like a two-way game. If you want to benefit from it, you have to allow others to benefit from from you as well. Uh, and uh, and I think we have been giving the wrong signals there. Uh, by the way, a couple of thoughts there. You know. One is that uh, global trade was already shrinking since the global financial crisis. Uh, and there's likelihood that, you know, after the pandemic, it could perhaps shrink more as, uh, you know, many countries such as India want to become much more self-reliant in many sectors. So, uh, you know, think about it as a shrinking pie. And if then India has ambitions uh, to, to gain a larger part of a shrinking pie, it will have to work very hard because it's never easy to break, to, to, to sort of gain when the overall pie is shrinking. Uh, and I do think that India needs a lot of very important reforms. You know, our own study had shown that, uh, you know, the reason why India's exports are not very competitive, about 50% is because our own domestic bottlenecks when we produce, 
uh, about 33% because of global growth. And the remaining, which is you know, less than 20%, is because of exchange rate. Uh, the big thing is domestic bottlenecks. We have to improve our ease of doing business. We have to do a couple of reforms, uh, particularly the ones I mentioned in, uh, you know, a, a couple of minutes ago on, on land, on power generation, and on transportation infrastructure. I think that would be very key. And then, of course, the second is to give the right signals. So I think we'll have to be very clear about our policy there as well. Just to cut a long story short, I think we need some clarity back home and then communicate it effectively. Right. And I suppose all of these steps are also very important if you're thinking about attracting some FDI, say, in manufacturing in India as well. Right. I mean, there's been a lot of talk lately about saying that global supply chains are going to get reconfigured after COVID. People are looking to diversify risks, some countries are specifically looking to get out of, say, places like China. So there is a sense that, you know, this is an opportunity for India, and even the Prime Minister said as much. Now, obviously, there is some opportunity in some theoretical sense, but uh, perhaps if we do not do the kinds of reforms that you're talking back home, you know, we are not really going to be well positioned to take up those opportunities. Yes, that's, that's absolutely correct, yes. Right. So, uh, Pranjal, just a Final question for you was, uh, you know, if, if the government has to now think both about managing this period of lockdown, which is continuing in phases, continuing in geographic locations across India, uh, but at the same time still look forward to the medium term target of uh, reviving and resuscitating growth. So in a sense, not just look at uh, pulling through this particular period, but also plan for a little ahead. I mean, what are the two or three headline issues that you think they should be focusing at? I mean, you've spoken about certain sectors, et cetera, but, uh, you know, government also, you know, I'm just mindful of the fact that, uh, you know, current crisis management must be sucking up a lot of their airtime and their mental energy. So, uh, but, but if there are a few things that we need to keep uh, our eyes very firmly set on in order to get that kind of medium term growth uh, that you're talking about, what should those things be? Yeah. So, look, uh, I think uh, our priority right now is to allocate capital efficiently. Uh, you know, as I said, India has a limited amount of savings, uh, which is necessary to fund growth. But we need to take it out of sectors which are not going to be working well, especially in the backdrop of COVID. Uh, and we need to take it out and put it in new sectors that will perhaps work well. And there are going to be a few sectors that will work well. For example, think of IT. You know, uh, you know, a lot of the uh, Indian IT firms have a lot to gain in the post-pandemic world when the rest of the world will be increasing its budget on um, you know, IT infrastructure, cybersecurity, and so on. So there are a lot of uh, sectors that could benefit, but there should be a process in our country by which we take out a lot of money and capital stuck in sectors that are not working and put it in these sectors that are working. Because that's the only way we get you know, good bang for the buck. That's the only way we keep the investment cycle ticking. Eventually, investments is the only way in which over time you can increase the jobs capacity of your economy, you know, create jobs, create long-term growth and so on. So with that in mind, I think it's very important at this point to strengthen the insolvency and bankruptcy code and ensure that it's being able to resolve a lot of the problem areas which banks have in terms of non-performing loans, a lot of loans that some sectors are not being able to repay. How do you resolve that? 
take that money out and put it in sectors which are working. So, you know, strengthening IBC is, I think, a priority right now, which a lot of people, frankly, are not acknowledging. The second is look after your banks because you need them to fund growth. At this point, I think the banks are a bit too battered uh, with, with, you know, with a lot of non-performing loans and also a lot of responsibilities. You know, we're looking at our banks to give money to small businesses. You know, we are giving, looking at our banks uh, to give money to NBFCs. Like we're, we are basically depending a lot on our banks. But who looks after the banks? I think the government will now have to start giving a lot of recapitalization bonds in order to recapitalize India's banks. Uh, and I think that's the only way that, you know, we can sort of stand back up quickly once the pandemic is behind us. And perhaps in the long run, just to take your suggestion forward, is is to, you know, not put so much of the burden on the banking sector to finance all our development and growth needs, right? I mean, uh, in a sense, we don't have a well-developed corporate bond market in this country. Yeah. Uh, and also, you know, corporates just seem to be sort of much more comfortable with debt than equity-related kind of transactions. So. Yeah, so that has been a long-standing problem in India. It's, it's quite a shame that our capital, our, our corporate bond market, isn't more liquid and uh, you know larger than it is, because that would have taken a lot of the burden off India's banking system. So you know that's one important area, uh, uh, and 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 of course we also need to uh, you know strengthen a lot of the regulation around the shadow banks. You know, many of the shadow banks. They have balance sheets which feel very opaque. A lot of people don't have access to it. We need uh, you know, better data coming out of uh, shadow banks so that they can be better regulated. So I think all of these things will be important, both the corporate bond market and a more efficient shadow banking system and take off some of the pressures from India's banking system, which I think is very much needed. Rajal, thanks so much for sharing your insights with us today. It was wonderful to chat with you. Thank you, Shina. Thanks for having me. It was great. Thank you for listening to this episode of Interpreting India. Stay safe and don't forget to wash your hands. For more information about the podcast and the production team, you can follow us on social media and visit our webpage.